I'm failing because of the Euro in Greece, John, in Detroit. And I realized at that moment in time that 120 episodes of Bar Rescue, I ask every owner why they're failing. Never once did an owner ever look at me and say, John, I'm failing because of me. Not one freaking time. And then I realized if I asked every one of them why they're failing, every one of them blamed someone or something else. And I realized, son of a gun, I found a common denominator of failure. It's an excuse, because what is an excuse? An excuse is a reconciliation of a failure. You did something you shouldn't have, you didn't do something you should have, or you screwed up somehow. So I'm gonna come up with an excuse to make you and me feel better about my failures. So if we get excuses out of our lives, we change our lives. Well, thank you for joining me today on Financially Speaking. My name is Mitch Slater. I'm a Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor with UBS Wealth Management in Westfield, New Jersey, where along with my partners, Anne and Crystal, we do our best to bring you advice beyond investing and address our clients' most challenging financial needs. It's my sincere hope that each and every episode of this podcast will educate you on personal finance and real-life business issues of the day. So let's jump right in. On his long-running reality show, Bar Rescue, John Taffer has visited nearly 200 bars to whip lazy, incompetent, or clueless owners into shape with an iron fist, a lot of shouting and shaming, and a little help from liquor brands and their ambassadors. John Taffer got his start in the industry in Los Angeles in the late 70s and early 80s, managing the bar at both the Troubadour and Barney's Beanery. He now lives in Las Vegas, which is where he has filmed this season's episodes of Bar Rescue, which are now available on the Paramount Network. So to get a sense on what the future looks like for bar owners and bar goers, I spoke with John Taffer recently. By the way, John is the author of two books, Don't BS Yourself, Crush the Excuses That Are Holding You Back, and Raise the Bar, an action-based method for maximum customer reactions. So enjoy this episode, a very special one, with John Taffer. Sit down. So John, this is something I bet nobody has ever asked you as your first question, but since we both went to the same summer camp, Camp Winnedoo in the Berkshires, and you were actually in my brother's bunk, and I have the photos to prove it, I know he had sent them to you, <laughs> Did your experience there in some way predict where your incredible future would take you? <laughs> you know, I do think in some ways. You know, I think the camaraderie of camp, the competitiveness of camp, the fact that when you go to a place like that, you need to be liked. It's a competitive environment, but you still need to be liked by everybody. Right. Your camp is very, very unpleasant. Exactly. So I think it did really empower me with many of the skills that made me successful today. Oh, I'm not surprised. I mean... Of course, I think the guy who ran the camp back then, Bill Spiegel, always had a saying, it's not whether you win or lose, it's how you play the game. Play the game, that's the truth. Yeah, right. Later we'll sing Blue and White and the Far Above a Noda's Waters, but we'll we'll save that for a little <laughs> bit later. <laughs> We're going to have a sing-off, okay. We'll have a sing-off, a song A song fest. fest. Right? You remember the circuses? I mean, oh my God, there's so many things. The salami and Coke nights were were personally my favorite in the cookouts. Yes. 
the steak cookouts weren't bad either. No, they weren't. It was always steak and watermelon. And then the counselors went to Friendly's for Fribbles. And we were all happy. <laughs> you know, when, when I went to summer camp, my counselors would cut the watermelons in half and they would cut the middle out, the sweet best part. And they'd give us the rinds with about two inches of melon in it. Remember that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Well, we're a family of photographers. We have movies of all of that, too, actually. It's pretty wow. incredible stuff. My father I'd love to see some yeah. of those one yeah. day. That would really be fun. That'll be great. Well, we'll get that. Some of it we need to get converted. So before we get more into your incredible and so well-deserved journey to where you are now, it's impossible to not start off today by asking the question that clearly is on the mind of everyone listening. So can the bar industry be rescued as the pandemic is now winding down? The answer is yes. I'm here in Las Vegas. Last week, Las Vegas was sold out. Streets are packed. Bars are full. I talked to my friends in New York. I'm told the same thing. Yep. I talked to my friends in Chicago and LA, all told the same thing. So customers are coming back. Here's what I think. We're going to lose about 22% of the bars across the country by the time this is over. So the 78% of the bars that remain have a great chance of success because capacity has dropped. So if the market comes back with any kind of surge with less capacity, one would only argue that the ones that remain are going to have a great opportunity. So I think this is boomtown. I think this is the roaring 20s. But we're fighting something that nobody's really talking about. We all know we're having a problem getting employees back. But you know those little ketchup packets you get in a restaurant? Right. Those used to cost seven cents. Then they went up to 11 cents. Then they went up to 17 cents. Then they went up to 30 cents. Now they're at 40 cents for wow. a ketchup packet. Now, what restaurant can survive when it costs them $1.20 to give you the ketchup for your hamburger? Three packets. So prices are outrageous. I have a friend who owns a lobster house on Long Island. He used to pay $9 a pound for his lobster that he flew from Maine. He's spending $21 a pound now. It's gone up 300%. He can't pass that on to a customer. If restaurants raise their prices by 50, 60, 70%, which they would need to do based upon what's going on with product and meat prices, et cetera, no customers would come. So we look at these restaurants, they're full with people. We can't get our employees back and our food cost is killing us. No restaurant is making money on what they're selling you now. Wow. That is scary. I mean, do you think that is short lived thing or is that? Well, you know, historically supply side problems like this can take two years to rectify. So, you know, it's not only that, can I get it or what it's going to cost me? It's, can I get it at all? Mm-hmm. And, you know, if they get a chicken breast that's this thick today and tomorrow it's that thick and then the next day it's this thick, how do you cook it consistently? How do you train your people to do it? So it becomes an insurmountable problem of not just cost, but consistency and quality. It, it impacts everything that makes a restaurant great. Including all the technology in the restaurants because you can't get the chips. And I don't mean the potato chips. I mean, you, no. you really you can't get the chips. And that's a problem that's giant throughout our economy, actually. Throughout My wife and I are going up to Montana for a few weeks to get out of the Vegas heat for a holiday. And we go to rent a car up there. And the car rental guy says, listen, we have no cars. Right. We have no cars because of the chips. The car companies won't sell us cars, but yet I still have to sell my cars when they hit 20,000 miles. So I've sold my cars and I don't have any new ones. So the rental car industry, you know, this season of bar rescue, lumber went up over 100%. We couldn't get hinges for doors and hardware. It's a nightmare out there. We opened mm-hmm. Taffer's Tavern in Atlanta during the pandemic. Right, right. Uh, we opened four months late about 30% over budget. I mean, we're hugely successful. I'm very proud of what we've accomplished. Oh, but 
Every Spring. time somebody got sick, we had to shut down for two weeks. So it took us months to open. And, you know, it's sort of like an enemy. It's around the corner. It's there at every turn. Right. But now yeah. we seem to have it under control. Thank God. Well, that's good. That's good. My friend Kristen Andre in, in Atlanta, I was speaking to her earlier today. She's like a regular. She just loves it. She and all of her girlfriends, they're spending a lot of time there. And loving all the drinks, too. <laughs> Good. So people seem eager to get back to socializing. And a big part of that is going to get back to the bar. And things are going to be different, like you said. But what other things about bars, businesses are going to change permanently after the pandemic, besides, obviously, the costs? You know, I was with a friend who runs one of the largest. He's president of one of the largest casino companies in the world, certainly here in Las Vegas. And I was talking with him the other night about, you know, how have things changed for him? And he goes, you know, our employees haven't come back to work. So we're operating with many, many less employees. And you know what, John? It's working. So we have identified policies and procedures and efficiencies to compensate for the lack of employees. Now those employees are going to find that those jobs might not be waiting for them. And I think that that's going to be one of the shifts that we're going to see is the employees haven't come back to work. So we're going to figure out how to do it without them. We have no choice. Right. And Taffer's Tavern, the typical casual dining restaurant has seven employees in the kitchen. Taffer's Tavern has two. Everything is robotic and computerized and systemized. So we don't have to have that amount of employees. The product is more consistent. It's the same every time. The machines don't call in sick. And this is where the industry is going to go if our employees don't get back to work and pretty quickly. Yeah. And hopefully these employees are getting themselves trained in other areas because they're going to, you know, they're obviously... Many are continuing to just sort of wait while the unemployment checks are there for yeah. because they're making more think, money. But, but that's think gonna about end. this. Think about this. If it's a household of two people and they're each getting unemployment benefits of eight hundred a week each, right? Then that's sixteen hundred dollars a week in unemployment benefits that household is getting. That's eighty three thousand dollars a year in income when the median income in America is only sixty three thousand. So you can stay home and make $83,000 a year. So right now, the government is the restaurant industry's worst enemy. The government is our worst enemy right now and has been really for the past year. Are we at a point, you mentioned the robotics. I wanted to go back to that. Are we at a point, obviously, the further along we go, the robotics are more and more affordable. But what did you find in, in finding the robotics that are doing it? And just give, maybe give us one or two examples of what you're using in robotics in the kitchen. Well, certainly for, you know, the kind of robotics and things that we use in the kitchen is these very computerized combination ovens that, that we use infrared light, microwave, steam, and convection all at the same time. 2% of this, 3% of that, 4% of this, 5% of this. So it creates an unbelievable product quality versus just an oven that's at one temperature and one type of cooking. That's one concept. The other concept is sous vide. And sous vide is the science of preparing food in water ovens in plastic bags. So, for example, we'll take a steak, really high-quality steak, we'll season it, we'll put it in a plastic bag, seal it, and we'll put it in a water oven at 135 degrees. That steak will cook to a perfect medium rare, but it has no dark edges around it. It looks like the center of a piece of prime rib. That steak is then shipped to the restaurant. It's put into one of our computerized ovens, and it's cooked, and it's probably the best steak you've ever had, as your friends have told you about oh, the Atlanta yeah. restaurant. All of that is very technology-rich. It takes me about two hours to train somebody to work in the kitchen on a Saturday night at 220, seats full, 
220 seats full. There's two people in a kitchen. It's quiet. It's calm. doesn't have the chaos. In essence, we've reinvented the kitchen. That's what the industry is calling us, the kitchen of the future. And this is the dichotomy. Certainly, I want people to have $15 an hour wages and more. I want people to make more than that. Sure. But the problem becomes when we push the wages up to a certain level, it becomes more efficient to buy equipment and people lose jobs. But here's what people don't understand in this whole minimum wage debate. Businesses manage their payroll based upon percentage. In the restaurant business, I can't spend more than 30% of my revenue on labor. So if you raise the cost per hour, I have to reduce the amount of hours to adjust. I can't go over 30%. I can't. So my only choice is to raise prices to compensate for that pay, which now puts me in a competitive situation. So it isn't so easy for people to go, oh, just give them $15. No, it doesn't work that way. So there has to be a process to this $2 every year or two. Inch it up. Give an industry an opportunity to adjust their economics so it works. These are the reasons why I say government is the worst enemy of my industry right now. Between taxes going up, enhanced unemployment benefits, and the kind of of environment that they're putting us in, they're contrary to the health of my industry. Mm, Not surprising. So let's talk just the hospitality industry just in general post-pandemic. We we always look for silver linings, and and you're a positive guy, but like you said, you know, COVID was kind of this once-in-a-century event for all businesses, but, you know, going out became basically impossible, certainly here in New Jersey and in New York City. So what trends or permanent changes to the customer experience from this nightmare will die? And what will change everything for the better? And I guess I'm asking a little bit about like the outdoor seatings, the pods. You know, when I was in New York over the weekend, the last couple of weekends having dinner with our kids, and I've noticed that some of these outdoor seatings areas, I mean, they're they're gorgeous. I mean, some people, you know, just put up a whatever they could find. But some people actually- Plants and lighting and they made it beautiful. Yeah, yeah. We were a cookout near Hudson Yards and and I loved what they did. I thought that was Isn't it interesting? The the restaurant that throws tables out the sidewalk doesn't do well, but the guy who really takes it a step further does great. Yeah. You know, that's the restaurant industry. Here's what I think is going to happen. Outdoor seating is going to remain. This type of seating is going to remain because the municipality codes have changed so the restaurants can have free seats outside that they're not paying rent on. They'd be a fool not to continue doing that if they can. So outside seating is going to become more prevalent. Think about this. Think about the first time you go back to a movie theater and you're sitting in a full movie theater and you cough once or twice. Hmm. A year ago, two years ago, people coughed in a movie theater. We didn't think twice of it. Today, you're the freaking devil if you cough in a movie theater. So are we going to stand as close to people as we used to? Probably not. Are some people going to continue to wear masks in airports and such? Yep. I think we're going to act a little like Asia with regard to people using masks and travel and such. Will there be new sanitation procedures in restaurants? Sure. You know, in Bar Rescue this season, we put in this blue zone system by Middleby, which is an air scrubbing system. We put it in every restaurant and bar we did this season that removes 99% of all airborne bacteria and viral matter from the air. These are kind of things that we're going to see permanently. There's another company, believe it or not, the name of the company is big ass fans and they're one of the greatest fan companies in the industry they've put ultraviolet devices in their ceiling fans brilliant sanitize the air as they go by so these technologies we're going to see everywhere and you're right it's completely brilliant so as your ceiling fan turns it's sanitizing the air there's another device called a path spot you put your hands under it 
And then you turn it over when it tells you to. And if there's no bacteria or viral on your hands, you get a green light, you can go to work. If there's any viral or bacteria in your hands, you get a red light back to the sink. <laughs> so we have now these policies and these technologies in place that are going to keep our air clean, keep our surfaces clean, keep our employees clean. And the sense of sanitation is greater, I think, than it's ever been. And there's nothing wrong with that. No, and that's an absolute silver lining that places are going to be cleaner. And having watched the number of the early episodes of this season, and I'll get back to that in a little bit, I loved seeing every one of those, especially the fans. I thought that was that's just really ab- cool stuff. A- absolutely cool. I mean, really And not very expensive. So every yeah. restaurant should go out and buy a few of these ceiling fans and put them in. Of course. Keep your employees it's a, safe as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what about the family-owned businesses? If You know, UBS obviously work with a lot of family-owned businesses. I know I work with a number of them. Gary Vaynerchuk, who you know, his company, yep. I, I work with them and VaynerMedia and everything they're doing. So they're not in the food business yet. I mean, knowing Gary, they're getting there. But if they didn't pivot to curbside pickup, touchless delivery, would they have been lost forever? Yeah, they would have been lost forever. But, you know, it's interesting. In this season of Bar Rescue, everybody blames the pandemic, the pandemic, the pandemic. But, you know, the bars that saved money made it through the pandemic. The bars that were nimble and did curbside delivery and, and curbside pickup, and they survived the pandemic. So, you know, to these bar owners, it's, I was doing great until the bar closed. And, you know, the government closed me down. Well, you know, the government closed down other bars, too, and they made it. So I'll let them blame it 60, 70% on a pandemic, but they got to own that other 30%. Absolutely. Had they ran the business properly and and established the savings and been nimble, they would have made it through too. Yeah. And to use your own expression, those that shut it all down, they really don't have a chance to come back. Yeah. And, you know, I always say, you know, no excuses, only solutions, right? Right, Which, you know, is a big quick of mine. COVID has become the world's greatest excuse. I mean, no matter what you want to buy, no matter what you want, ah, COVID, John, it's COVID, it's COVID. (laughs) People don't even try anymore because they got that excuse, COVID. Well, you know, when we were doing bar rescue, we were told construction supplies are impossible to get, food's impossible to get. Well, we did our 10 episodes. We got our supplies. We made it happen. We didn't accept COVID as an excuse. We moved forward. At Taffer's Tavern in Georgia, we didn't accept COVID as an excuse. We moved forward in spite of it, fighting it every step of the way, understanding it's there, but not allowing us to paralyze us. Right. And what I worry about is American business has been paralyzed in very many ways when it didn't need to be. I certainly agree. And we'll really be able to see who the survivors are. And they're usually the ones that were that didn't sit around. They got it done. They put in the extra 10,000 hours, maybe they 20,000 hours during this period. Yeah. You know, we're going to see legacy brands disappear over this. We're going to yeah. see, you know, new brands become legacy brands. We're going to see great marketers bubble to the top, great promoters bubble to the top. I see opportunity everywhere for the ones that are really ready to dive in and seize it. Oh, that is sure. So as someone that lived in L.A. in the early 80s, I can't let this opportunity go by without sharing how you got your start in all of this back on Sunset Strip. In my opinion, the greatest venue that really kicked off the careers of more Rock and Roll Hall of Famers and many just of my favorites, the Laurel Canyon crowd back then, Jackson Brown, Linda, the Eagles, and this guy from London, Elton John, just popping in. We're talking about the Troubadour for anyone that's the millennials or the Gen Zs that maybe aren't familiar with it. George Carlin was in the mix George, too yeah. back then. I mean, these are the greatest, the clash. I mean, we could, you know, there's so much, obviously we can talk about and because this is UBS programming, we can't tell some of the stories I've heard you tell before, which are just outrageous and I love them. And I'm going to direct people to where you can hear those 
in certain other episodes. Barstool probably would be the best place Barstool. to go. I did a great one for Nerdist a couple yes. of years ago where I really got down and yes, told the that, stories. I listened to that the other day and I loved it. I loved it. But let's talk about those days because, you know, and then your whole transition to Barney's Beanery, because there's a lesson that people can learn from what happened with you at Barney's Beanery. But what was that like? How old were you when you, you started at the Troupe? Oh, so I was about 23, I guess, 22 when I started the Troubadour. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was sort of thrown into it. A friend of mine knew the owner and I got a job as a doorman at the Troubadour. I was a musician. I was a drummer. So I went to L.A. to play in bands and play the drums. And your brother will remember, I actually had those drums in summer camp <laughs> in a closet in, in the social hall. But, you know, I got a chance to get an opportunity to run this iconic venue, the Troubadour. And when I took the Troubadour over, there was three inches of water on the floor. It was flooded. It was going bankrupt. And every night the owner would come in, empty the safe and use the proceeds for recreational activities. Mm -hmm. So I would come into work in the morning and the money wouldn't be there to accept my liquor and food deliveries. So it got so bad to the point that I had to protect the business from its own owner. I would take the money home at night. I would even put it in a safe. And then I'd come back in the morning with the money and pay the liquor guys. And we did the 25th anniversary of the Troubadour when I was there. Oh, right, right. And we called Elton John and Linda Ronstadt and Jackson Brown and even the Knack mm-hmm. and many of the others who had come out of the Troubadour. And they all came back for a month. Right. And they all played for free. And we raised all the money we needed to fix the plumbing and fix up the Troubadour and get it set for the next generation. Was that filmed? That was never filmed. I don't think you know, I've ever seen film of that. It was interesting. I tried to buy the Troubadour a few months ago, and I was really looking at it. And and some of the logic of working with some of my TV partners would be the history of the Troubadour is great television. Oh, that's a documentary. It's the history of of American rock and roll in so many ways. Doug Weston, who owned the Troubadour, never allowed people to film in the Troubadour. If he caught you, he'd shut it down instantly. Hmm. So there is no real footage of all of these bands at the Troubadour. It's very, very hard to find, and certainly not a lot of it, enough to make a documentary, which is unfortunate. Yeah, no, it is. I'm friends with Tom Zimney, who does all the documentaries for Bruce and did one with Johnny Cash, and and it's all about what you can find in the archives. And, and, and there's was, nothing there. No. Unfortunately, had Doug allowed videotaping, oh boy, that oh content boy. would have been worth a fortune today. Absolutely, absolutely. My God. So what moves you over to Barney's Beanery? You just realized that- Well, was, I was a drummer. Yeah. And I was playing music all day in, in recording studios and such. And then I would go to the Troubadour and hear three bands a night. And I was just spent- on the whole volume, the three bands a night. So I said, I'm going to leave a music venue for a little while and go down the street. So I go down the street to Barney's Beanery, which is really every bit as iconic as the Troubadour. Second in best beans kind of in, in L.A., right? Always Second best second chili. Best. Right. chili. Yeah, yeah. Always remember Chasen's. that. Chasen's. Although there's some that would say Tommy's in the Valley, but, you know, Chasen's yeah. would be number one. <laughs> Tommy's in the Valley wasn't bad yeah. either, actually. No. <laughs> but no, and, you know, running to Barney's Beanery was a completely different scene. Obviously, not a music scene. A lot of musicians would go there, but it wasn't oh, a yeah. music scene. And, you know, a very different kind of venue than a Troubadour was. So, you know, these venues really gave me my chops and taught me what it's like to be in a business. It also taught me how to deal with celebrities, how to deal with entertainers, how to deal with technical writers and all the various things attached to show business. So by the time I left those two venues, I was really, really well equipped to go out and pursue my career. But while you were at Barney's Beanery, another bartender said something to you. And I think that kind of really shows the kind of man you are. I started Barney's Beanery. And the lead bartender comes up to me. The first, I'm not even there 10 minutes. Says to me, we steal here, John. 
and we each steal about $100 a night. If you don't steal, and we do, the registers are going to be out of whack, and he's going to know it. So if you want to work here, you steal with us. I did the first night. I did it about half the second night. I just couldn't deal with it. You know, the owner would come up to me. He was nice to me. He'd look in my eyes. He'd welcome me to work. And I can't look in the eyes of the person I'm stealing from. I mean, it was too much for me. And you and I have similar upbringings. I mean, those are just not the values no, that we no, have. I not could at all. not do it. So I pulled the owner aside. I didn't say employees' names, but I said, listen, your bartenders are stealing. If I don't steal with them, they're going to cause huge problems for me. So if I don't steal, I'm going to have problems with them. If I do steal, I'm going to have problems with you. So I told him the story. The bartenders were fired. I was made the manager, which was not my intention. I wasn't looking to get anybody fired or anything. And I started running Barney's Beanery as a result from that. But, you know, that lesson taught me a lot about myself. And that ability of I won't do something that doesn't have integrity is why Bar Rescue is still on TV. Absolutely. It's because, all about you know, I'm integrity. completely honest in Bar Rescue. And there's no scripting and there's no setups or any of that in Bar Rescue. So I think those lessons that we learn young are so important to formulating who we become later. Oh, yeah. I think back to Winnetou, all the stripes that they used to give out, you know, for sportsmanship and yeah. all those Stripes that we try the to do circle. The winner do circle. Exactly. Exactly. I always had trouble with the cleanliness. That was that was the one I struggled with. But other than that, it was great. Um, I made it one year, but I think my brother set me up, who was a couple uh, years older than me, because I didn't quite deserve it. I don't think. Uh, yeah. Well, that's okay. That's all right. When I started doing my research, honestly, I have to give a shout out to my son Harrison because he he has been my best research source on you because he is a huge fan, not of just your show, but a barstool guy. He just spent four years in DC before he moved up here. And we're watching red zone. I don't know, last season, two seasons ago. And he goes, you know why there's red zone? I'm like, why? He goes, you know, John Taffer, the bar rescue guy. That's why there's red zone. And it is, you started NFL ticket. I did. I'm the creator of NFL Sunday Ticket back in 1995. It's actually an amazing story. A company called ComSat, which is a huge satellite management company. They do all the pay-per-view and hotels and all that kind of stuff. Hired my company to do market research on what was then called out-of-market sports programming. So in essence, if you were sitting in New York, you could buy the Dallas signal, get the Cowboys game, and the local coach show as well. That was the premise of it. So they hired my company to do a feasibility study, determine what would the bar industry pay for, would it work, would anybody buy it, et cetera, for this out-of-market sports programming. So we did the feasibility study on it. You know, We thought it was a very valuable opportunity. We presented it back to the company. They said, wow, this is bigger than we even thought. What does it look like, John? What is the programming like? What is the marketing like? What does the product look like? So we did a second document that defined the product. While we were writing that document, something called compression happened. Mm. And compression allowed one satellite transponder to receive multiple signals. Up to then, for me to get eight NFL games, I needed eight of those huge analog dishes. I needed a quarter of an acre <laughs> behind the bar to put my dishes in. So this changed technology. So then we realized, okay, we can get seven, eight games at the same time. So we designed the product, gave it back to ComSat. They said, this is unbelievable. Now tell us, who can we sell it to? So we did a third document, which listed all the chains and all the companies that we thought would buy it. They took my three documents, went to the NFL to try to buy the rights to the signals. And the FNL said, this is a hell of a business. Let's do it ourselves. So the NFL chose to do it, put me on a board of NFL Enterprises, which is the commercial arm of the National Football League, and we turned it into NFL Sunday Ticket. 
And that's the story. And boy, you've made a lot of happy fans on any given Sunday. I don't know about my wife's family from Detroit. You know, any excuse to have extra Lions games on is it's not a privilege, but as a Giants fan, it's it terrific. Is. It really has been great. Um, and, and every other sports league has modeled their program. Oh, it's, it's, it's so, all happened. It's yes, all happened. It's been very you see it with every sport now, now in college as well. One of the things that I admire most and I don't know, go back to Winnetou or our upbringing, use a Yiddish term, is your spilkus. And for those of you that are not in the tribe, basically that's ants in your pants. And I mean that in the best possible way because it kind of describes me too. So with two best-selling books out there, Raise the Bar and don't, we'll have to say BS yourself, but it's one of the rare times I've seen the title be the actual word, which I give a lot of credit to you. You've had so many things going on, and then you've got your side hustles. And I'm not saying Bar Rescue's a side hustle, but you got Taffer's Tavern, Taffer's Mixologist, which is, I'm really interested in that aspect. Talk a little bit about the mixology business. We took a look at all the mixers out there, and you know they're in these plastic bottles. They're preservatives. They're $12, $13 for a Bloody Mary mix. I said, this is ridiculous. Let's put out a really high-quality mix. Let's use a glass bottle. It's hot fillet so it doesn't need preservatives. Let me get the best mixologist in the country to develop these recipes, and let's sell it for under $6. This is ridiculous. So we did, and we put together Taffer's Mixologist. I believe they're the best mixers in the world at a great, great price. And it was so successful that I said, you know, I've been playing around with this strawberry basil flavor for a couple of years. I want to make a strawberry basil seltzer. So it started with the mixology, with the mixers, and Walmart took them and a couple of other retailers took them. And then we introduced our seltzer a few months after that, which is now our alcoholic seltzers called Taffer's Craft Carbonated Cocktails, is now in, I think, 21 states and we're doing extremely well around the country. And they're, they're all based in flavor profiles that I've developed over the years. We've so, done a good job of expanding the brand and creating, you know, vertical and horizontal brand extensions. It's worked well for us. But, you know, it's all about understanding what a brand is. And in my world of TV rankings, there are companies called MediaSync and others that do e-reports on celebrities on television. And they rate those celebrities in different ways. And for a bunch of years in the culinary space, and I won't mention the other names in the space, everybody knows who they are, Taffer, brand Taffer, was number one in trust and number one in honesty. Those two categories, the brand was number one, but we weren't number one in influence. We were number two in influence. We were about six, seven points behind somebody else. This year, for the first time, the brand became number one in influence, number one in trust, number one in intelligence. And this is all rated, obviously, by the audience and media sync and all the market research and stuff. So what do you do with that? You know, if a brand has an athletic base, you do one thing with it. If a brand is based in trust, wow, that opens up a whole different set of doors. If a brand is based in intelligence, wow, that opens a different set of doors. So if a brand has influence, of course, that opens all doors you know, for marketing opportunities. So, so I'm a brand marketer, and my whole life I've developed and opened and built brands. So I'm John. That's Taffer. <laughs> Taffer's the guy on TV. Yep, it's the same guy because I'm authentic. But I'm a man. That's a brand. And I get that. Oh, so I yeah. position that brand carefully and we're very strategic in the way we go about the brand. That's why I, I didn't open a restaurant for so many years. People said, do it, do it, do it, do it. It wasn't right. So we do these things when they feel right to us, but there's a real sensitivity in being market-driven and brand-driven when we make these choices. Yeah, and the trust after people watch, we'll get to it in a minute, the, this particular season I think is just going to go just through the roof. And by the way, John also hosts his own podcast, the John Taffer Podcast. 
which first of all has the coolest set. You know, shout out to your was it Colby? Is that your what's the, Corey, 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 Corey. Me. Yeah, I love that set. Right. And and really, really, really fascinating. But John, you ever sleep? I mean, what drives you John today as much as age 66 and clearly as much as I don't know, in your days in LA getting started? I like helping people. I like making something better every day. You know, bar rescue to me isn't about the bars. It's about the people. You know, I can build bricks and mortar and make it beautiful all day long. That's easy. How do you change people so that they can be more successful? How do I inspire college kids when I do a speech at a college? How do I inspire an industry when I do a keynote at a convention? How do I move minds? How do I make this better for all of us? And I also feel that we have a huge responsibility, both of us. You and I have lived long, successful lives. We have a lot of knowledge in our head. It's our responsibility to pass it on. I believe that we don't grow as a society if people like you and I don't pass the knowledge that we've gained on. So I like waking up every day and helping people and teaching people and changing things and building things. So that's what I do. And if it's building a brand, I love it. If it's building a bar, I love it. If it's building up a person, I love it. So I don't see any more great changes for myself. I'll tell you, there is one thing that I'm working on, which I'm pretty proud of is, is whoops. I just dropped the glass behind my door here, Okay, which is I'm working on a number of whiskey products and projects that I'm very, very proud of. And and, uh, you're talking to a big fan of bourbon and whiskey. So I'm really, I want you to try Frey Ranch bourbon, which is a bourbon I'm working on. It's I'm on it, which is fantastic, but I love building things. So that's what I'll always do. What you just said is I couldn't describe what matters more to me in life than anything where I'm at is helping others and mentoring others and even just starting this podcast. And it took me six years to get this done. I'm in a business that's a very conservative business and now it's taking off and I'm mentoring other people and, and the pleasure that I get from seeing, you know, from seeing that happen and having the opportunity to speak with folks like you is, you know, and share that wisdom because I got that from a guy named Larry King photo right behind me. I mean, Larry gave me a start when I was 20 years old. He didn't know me. I met him when he was, I was interning at another show. He had the biggest radio audience in in America at the time, overnight radio. And I just was a fan. And I asked him to lunch like you're supposed to do three months before graduation. We sat, we mostly talked about sports. We bonded over baseball and everything else. And by the end of the meal, he offered me a job to be an overnight producer on the radio show, which, you know, at the time meant getting coffee and whatever else and going on the air as Larry at three in the morning and everything else that I did. But the experience that I got from him and learning about being curious and listening, as Larry always said, he never learned anything with his mouth open. I just think that's just so beautiful to hear what, what you have to say, because I know well, how you know, I knew Larry. Me. I knew Larry well. I know uh, you did. F- first time I met Larry was when I ran Grossinger's in the Catskill Mountains at a New York State Broadcasters Association event. And back in 1981 or two is the first time I ever met Larry. That's when and I, I worked for show, him. And I did the show many times over the years, and I mm-hmm. did conventions with him where we would ask each other questions on stage and stuff. Larry was a class act in every way. Larry had an inherent respect for humanity that made him curious. He was really interested in what you had to say. He didn't just listen because he was an interviewer. He was really interested in what you had to say. And that's what made him so good. You know, people in this business that are successful are always authentic. Larry King was about as authentic as it gets. Also, I'm a friar in New York. And of course, you know, Larry's involvement in the friars. I went went to a few friars dinners with him and David Suskind, actually, who was uh, another part of my career before I got in this world. David was great too. David David was was incredible. But it's interesting because Larry and I, prior to his stroke, 
I was at his home and we actually did one of these when I first started the show. We're talking about doing a podcast together with his friend Cal Fussman and we were working on uh, a bunch of different ideas before the stroke and then things just, you know, progressed unfortunately in the wrong direction. But if you have those mentors in life, do you have one mentor? Is there someone when you look back? There isn't a life? one mentor. My grandfather was a very yeah. powerful mentor to me. That ma- matters. Uh, and my dad died when I was two, but he was, my grandfather was extremely successful and took our company from poverty to extreme wealth and gets credit for inventing direct mail, believe it or not, in the advertising history books. So, so you know, I, I looked at him and how he changed everybody's life around him and after him. And that became something that meant very much to me. I guess that's why I try to change lives today is because he was so effective at doing it himself. And you paid attention to what he was I doing. I paid attention. I did. Yeah. You know, yeah. I listened to everything he said. He meant the world to me. Yeah. Let's talk about season eight because it's now airing a bar rescue. And obviously this one just seems to be, I don't know, is it fair to say just more of a labor of love this year? I mean, uh, you're doing it in your hometown of Las Vegas, which clearly economically was the epicenter of, you know, towns devastated by COVID. You know, I've seen some of these episodes and they were absolute emotional gut punches. They are. Typical bar rescue is so anger filled. I cried a few times this season. I mean, the episode this Sunday happens to be our 200th episode, which is a real milestone. But that aside, it's an unbelievable story. You know, we've all heard what's happened to the restaurant industry and the bar industry over this past year and a half. The industry has hurt. But we haven't really heard what's happened to the people in the industry this past year and a half. This season of Bar Rescue shows that. Employees have lost their cars that are carpooling with each other. I have one bar owner, lost his house. He's living in a hotel, ran his credit card bills up, but he's still paying his employees. Lost his house to continue to pay his employees. And then after that, those same employees stole from him. Oh. Why? Because at 25% capacity, they couldn't make a living. They were desperate. And these are the things that I've learned this season. This week's episode, I don't want to ruin it for you, but three days before I showed up, a family lost their home. They had no place to live. They had nothing. We show up to save their restaurant. They can't even make their payroll the next day. They had nothing. They're sleeping on a wooden floor above the restaurant. So these are heart-wrenching stories about how the pandemic and the government regulations around the pandemic have destroyed lives. And I'm trying to turn them back around and help them as much as I can. And you know what I realized? And I learned this when I did my rescues down in Puerto Rico. You know, if I rescue their bar and I leave them in a good place, but they have no home, what good did I do? Right? If I can't stabilize their family, I'm not really helping them. So you'll see this Sunday, I came up with a solution to help them end the bar uh, well, and set them back on their path. And these things mean a real lot to me. We will certainly link to that specific episode when this airs. You know, it's all about the, the kind of the human experience of resilience. And I think that's what you're, you're really hitting home with. And it's really... The bar rescue is yeah. actually very Shakespearean. Person in trouble, resists change, accepts change, redeems themselves, happy ending. It's about as Shakespearean as it gets when you really yeah. think about it in that sense. And people don't realize that you literally, you don't know what you're doing. You go in, what, a day or two before and, that, and oh, you no. learn it all, right? I don't, I don't go in at all. There is no yeah. advance. Nothing. Right. I yeah. get no advance briefing. And that's, that, that's, that doesn't exist in television. No, it doesn't. But that's, that's why the show is good. Right. See, I don't know what's going on and I'm not reenacting it for the audience like exactly. every other reality right. show. The right. audience is living it with me in real time. You put the real in reality. You are real. I think so. Yeah, I think so. And that's, that was always the basis by which I did the show. Mm-hmm. We're going to wrap, but I, I just wanted to first quote you on a recent 
podcast, one of your best of podcasts, where you talked about how critical it is that this is the time to chase your dreams. And I just wanted you to expand on that briefly. And then I have one other quick question and we're good. This is a time now of great instability in the economy. Everybody's looking for their next opportunity. There's dollars out there. There's opportunity like I've never seen before. This is the chance to pursue your dreams. Now, when other people are paralyzed, like during COVID, that's the chance you should not be. That's when a competitive environment shifts to your advantage. So I believe this is boomtown. And I believe anybody who's ever thought about opening a business should look at it now. Landlords are aggressive. Money is out there. Consumers are eager to get reengaged. This is boomtown. And if ever, again, as anybody's thought of opening a business, this is the time to do it. Without a doubt. So this is the billboard question. Tim Ferriss, I grabbed it from him, but it's so good. You've granted a giant billboard. The whole world will read it with your message. John Taffer, what would it be and why? Probably my message would be no excuses, only solutions. And I'll tell you why briefly. I was doing my 120th episode of Bar Rescue. And the owner of the bar was a woman who owned the bar in Detroit. And I looked at her and I said, why are you failing? And she looked at me, she goes, I'm failing because of the Euro in Greece, John, in Detroit. And I realized at that moment in time that 120 episodes of Bar Rescue, I ask every owner why they're failing. Never once did an owner ever look at me and say, John, I'm failing because of me. Not one freaking time. And then I realized if I asked every one of them why they're failing, every one of them blamed someone or something else. And I realized, son of a gun, I found a common denominator of failure. It's an excuse, because what is an excuse? An excuse is a reconciliation of a failure. You did something you shouldn't have, you didn't do something you should have, or you screwed up somehow. So I'm gonna come up with an excuse to make you and me feel better about my failures. So if we get excuses out of our lives, we change our lives. So then I realized, okay, if an excuse is a reconciliation of, of a shortcoming, if I wake up tomorrow morning and blame my failure on the president, I have no reason to change. But if I wake up tomorrow morning and look in the mirror and say, I believe I'm failing because of me, I have every reason to change and I will change. So I believe, you know, excuses, no excuses, only solutions is the most powerful thing that anyone can do in their personal and professional lives and stop reconciliating uh, failures and disappointments in our lives. And let's focus on holding ourselves accountable for what we do in the ways that we do it. That was a very powerful lesson for me. That's why I wrote the book, Don't BS Yourself. That book came from that experience. And then we said, okay, let's destroy excuses. Let's pick the top five and destroy every one of them in the book. So when you finish reading the book, there are no excuses left. You're stuck with it now. You have to perform. And that was the whole premise of that book. And if you haven't read it, you probably get a real kick out of it. Oh, I love to send you one. No, no, but, I haven't. I loved it. It was all from that bar rescue episode in Detroit is where all that came from. Mm. And it's so ironic. Your favorite drink is the Godfather because there were no excuses in the Godfather. That's true. What is it made with quickly? Just to remind uh, our ounce and a half of scotch and a half ounce of amaretto. Terrific. I'm John Taffer and you're listening to Financially Speaking with Mitch Slater. And when Mick speaks, I listen. Well, thank you so much, John Taffer, for spending time with us here on Financially Speaking. What a fantastic episode. I cannot wait to unleash this to my audience. There is so much wisdom, especially post-pandemic, for restaurant owners, for the hospitality industry. And folks, don't forget, episodes of Bar Rescue are on now, the seventh season, 200th episode. You can see them on the Paramount Network. 
You can also go to johntaffer.com, pick up a copy of some of his swag, his books, Don't BS Yourself, and Raise the Bar are available there. So thanks, John, so much for being a part of this show. And it was great to talk to an old Winnedoo camp brother. And thanks to the folks at Resonate Recording for all the great work you do. And as we say on this show every week, shut it down. No, actually, we say pay yourself first. Thanks so much. And stay tuned, folks. Our next episode is number 100, a very special episode coming to you live on tape from Danny Clinch's Transparent Gallery in Asbury Park with my very special guest, the mighty Max Weinberg. Have a great week.